ministry. And that is what we will be reflecting on today. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote these words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray as we go to the Holy Scriptures this morning. Father God, we praise you for everything that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that in your word you left us the historical account of Jonah, but you did so in a way that points to your son Jesus. God, I pray as we consider this aspect of the ministry of Christ and how Jesus reflects on Jonah, that we will see how this matters to our life today as well. In everything you are doing to exalt your son, let us see the role that Jonah and his ministry played into that and how our lives are meant to be committed to that as well. The exaltation and the glorification of Jesus Christ. And it is only in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. As we went through the book of Jonah, we saw the very heart of God himself God had a heart that longed to show mercy to Nineveh and a heart of one that craved for Jonah to get on board with that, that Jonah should develop a heart like God to have compassion, empathy, and love, not hate toward Nineveh. So God, partially due to his attributes of mercy and kindness, calls Jonah to this mission to preach to this massive city of Nineveh. And because of this ministry, Nineveh is spared the wrath of God. And the Lord who cared so much about Jonah and who was concerned so greatly about Nineveh shares that same concern for you. God is concerned for your salvation. God is concerned for your ultimate good, God has compassion for you and longs for you to experience his refuge and his safety and his salvation. That same God who spared both Jonah and Nineveh became a man in Jesus Christ. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And centuries past, between Jonah's preaching and the appearing of Jesus Christ into this world as the incarnate God. Before God became a man as Christ, Jonah went to Nineveh and called out the sin of this great city. And God used the preaching of Jonah 
to bring repentance to Nineveh. But here's what's interesting, though. Even though centuries separate that account of Jonah from the ministry of Christ, we see something in our text today, a declaration of Jesus. While God loved Jonah, Jonah's ultimate mission was not about Jonah. While God wanted to spare Nineveh, the book of Jonah is not ultimately about Nineveh. God sent Jonah to Nineveh ultimately, chiefly, to glorify Jesus Christ. I want you to keep a finger right here in Matthew, but I want you to turn to Luke 24. I'm going to put the text up here because it's kind of a longer text, but we're going to come back to Matthew. But right now, let's look at the book of Luke. Luke 24, verse 13. Jesus Christ came into this world and proclaimed the love of God and for our sins went to the cross and he died, crucified. But three days later, we proclaim boldly that Jesus came back to life. And after Jesus returned to life, this incident occurred that Luke documents in the scripture. In Luke 24, verse 13, we read of this. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is an amazing segment of scripture. I love the humor of it. They're having a conversation with Jesus and they, and they don't even realize it. But I also love how, how Jesus explains how we are to view the Scriptures. All of Scripture ultimately points to God's agenda with the Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that sometimes there are point-blank, outright, clear predictions of Jesus in the Old Testament? Yes. But that is not all it means. 
it also means that God was providentially moving in such a way throughout history that those that he used in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18.15, it says this. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses spoke these words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And it is in Acts that the disciples realize the ultimate interpretation of that text. In Acts 3, verse 19, we read this. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago to his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. So Moses was a prophet of God. But the ultimate fulfillment of his life was to point to the prophet, Jesus Christ. And what God was doing through Moses was used to point to Jesus. God's people understood that God worked in anticipatory ways. They could anticipate, they could predict how God would behave because God is consistent in his attributes of holiness and kindness and power and mercy and love and grace. And they could anticipate the way that he would move in history based on how he had already chosen to move in the past. We can anticipate each other as well. Maybe you have some loved ones in your house and you know exactly what they're going to do. I've been doing this parent gig now for about 10 years. And I have learned something about what happens the day after Halloween. I can't anticipate it. I can't predict it. You see, typically when my kids wake up, they want a bowl of cereal. Or they want maybe a bagel. But not the day after Halloween. If you are a parent, you can testify. Your kid walked up today. What was the question they asked you? Can I have some candy? Daddy, for breakfast, can I have some M&M's? Could I have some Skittles today, Daddy? I can't anticipate it. I knew it was going to happen as soon as I saw the kids this morning. You know, Israel knew God's attributes through how he interacted with them and, and revealed himself. They knew that God had strongly asserted he would judge treason against himself as creator of the universe. But they also anticipated and they knew that God longed not to punish, but to show mercy and steadfast love. As history played out, they were anticipated him to act the same way. As God had judged in the past, so he would judge in the future. As God had shown mercy in the past, so he would show mercy in the future. And these two aspects of God, the commitment to judge sin, But the desire to show mercy are ultimately found in Jesus Christ. So God called Moses to be a prophet. But Moses pointed to the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. God called David 
to be a king. But his life was to point to the ultimate king of the Messiah. And what Jesus says is that the prophet Jonah ultimately points to the Christ. That all of Scripture, everything we have here from Genesis to Revelation, its ultimate fulfillment is when it causes us to fix our gaze upon Jesus. Now, that's not the only hermeneutical principle we can use when we read this book. That's not the only way we interpret it. What have we done for the past few weeks? We went to the book of Jonah, and we just camped out in the book of Jonah. And we looked at how God moved in his life and how he moved in the life of Nineveh. We look at the historical setting. We look at what God is doing. But we see this is ultimately about Jesus. And that is why when we turn to the book of Matthew, our first application is this. In Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40, the application is evaluate the obstacles that keep people from coming to Jesus. Look with me again, back in Matthew, where we started, Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of their day. And what was keeping them from just following Jesus? Well, their assertion would be they just need a sign. If, if Jesus would just give a sign, then, then they'd get on board. And the Christ becomes agitated with this response. And why? Is it wrong to ask for a sign? You see, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, saw religion as something that pointed to themselves. It fed their egos. They used it to exalt themselves in their own society. In other words, they were very religious outwardly, but inwardly there was no genuine love for God. There was no genuine love for others. And here comes Jesus who is authentically after their hearts. And he is passionately interested, not just in knowing that we serve a God that longs to show mercy and love, but that he commands us to follow him in that pursuit, that we must have hearts of mercy and love and kindness. And that was far from the Pharisees. This is a group that comes to Jesus and says, give us a sign. Reveal yourself the way we want you to, Jesus. Do what we want, and then maybe we'll contemplate following you. And Jesus is frustrated with their cold hearts. And is it because they ask for a sign? Is that the only reason Jesus is upset? I don't think so. I think we can glean some insight from the Old Testament to understand what's going on here. In the book of Judges, in Judges 6, beginning in verse 17, we read this. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. And we know that Gideon had the sign of his offering, the burnt offering. And he had the sign of a fleece. 
Gideon asked for a sign, and God does not seem as agitated as this group. In Isaiah 38, verse 4, in the book of Isaiah 38, verse 4, we, we read this of this account of King Hezekiah. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. So here we see God giving signs. Gideon seems weak, and God comforts him with a sign he requested. Hezekiah is comforted with a sign he did not even request. So what's going on here in Matthew? I do not think that Jesus is concerned that they ask for a sign. I think he is concerned with why they asked for a sign. I think he is concerned with the setting with which they asked for a sign. And do we see the difference? Think about the context of this ridiculous request. Anybody who was around Jesus and his ministry would not have been void of signs. All they had to do was open their eyes. The false teachers demanding a sign from Jesus. This is the Jesus who was baptized and God spoke from heaven. This is the Messiah who turned water into wine. This is the Son of God who was driving out demons, demons who had clear supernatural strength over their victims, falling down before the Christ. This is the Jesus who healed paralytics, lepers, and the like. This is the Jesus that the Pharisees say, won't you please just give us a sign? To this Jesus, the Pharisees come with their pathetic demand for a sign. And the thought has to be, really? Haven't you been watching? Have you not heard? Miracles and signs all over the place. Do you see the setting with which they made this request? Now, a superficial reading of Matthew 12, 38 would seem that the only obstacle Keeping these people from accepting Jesus was just one little sign, just one sign in their end. But the larger context shows that is not the case at all. This is a group that has seen Jesus in action. They know his capability and they've seen his works that have authenticated that he is truly the Son of God. So this demand for a sign, this is a facade. This is a smokescreen. This is an excuse. The Pharisees are not following Jesus, and this refusal to obey the Christ is not a matter of the mind. This is a matter of the heart. It is not that they just did not have enough evidence, and if they did, well, then they would obey. It's that they have evidence, but they don't want to obey. Once again, do we see the difference in that? The real obstacle here for these men refusing to embrace the salvation of Jesus is not that they simply don't have enough proof. It's that to accept Jesus means you have to abandon your ego. To accept the Christ means you don't get to use religion to exalt yourself. It's a focus on God. 
To come to Jesus means that they have to let go of their pride and start showing genuine love. And so they don't come to the Christ. And they say, well, really, we just want a sign. We see this in our culture today as well. There are people who've had countless opportunities to encounter God. The Holy Spirit has pursued them in so many ways. They had family members, parents, and loved ones who pointed them to Jesus. They saw what the gospel did to people in their lives and how it changed them. They've turned to the word and they could feel God moving in their life and they still push it away. They have the design of this world, the complexity that is all around us, that begs for a creator. They absurdly say that this world, this universe just is when this universe cries out and declares that it is just temporary. They have the moral inclinations that point them to the truth that if these moral inclinations are true, there's a moral lawgiver, and they push it aside. You can bring them the, the historicity of the New Testament and, and make the argument, and still it will be cast aside. Just one more sign, and maybe I'll believe. I, don't, I do not believe in God because, well, there, there's hypocrites in the church. I, I do not believe in God because I hate organized religion. I don't, I don't believe in God because... A God that I could think of wouldn't act like this God of the Bible. I just don't have enough evidence. And excuse after excuse after excuse is given. But is that really what is motivating the disbelief? Now, I do want to make a distinction here. Because the goal is, whenever we see that someone has a barrier to coming to Jesus, we must use discernment. We must discern what is happening. Because what I'm not saying is that there are not people who are genuinely wrestling with the evidence. And, and the evidence really is a barrier to them, and they're just trying to figure it out. In situations like that, we need patience. We need perseverance. We need to be a people who are ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. We need to be a people who are drawing closer to God and looking at the evidences for God so that we can present them. There are people who are genuinely seeking truth, and they should see in us love and patience and perseverance. But we need to have discernment because there are others, others who, if we could peel back their heart, would be like the Pharisees, where the true obstacle is not a matter of the mind, it is a matter of the heart. You see, there are people who are professional disagreeers, professional arguers. You can see it in social media. They love a good fight, and they'll argue, and they'll fight. And when they're not fighting, they love to be passive-aggressive because they have a disposition that craves arguing, not truly considering the evidence. And we must discern what type of person we're dealing with we should love people like that. We should love all people, period. But Jesus recognizes what's going on here with the Pharisees. It is not that they're just void of one sign and that would have done it. It's that they are the professional arguers of their day. They are the antagonists of their day. They're looking for the next fight, the next argument, the next confrontation. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because, friends, in the end, God can pursue us. He can give us evidence of his existence. He can send people in our lives to point us to him. But we all, in the end, must submit to this application. We must embrace the way God has chosen to save us. Look with me in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. God has chosen how he will reveal himself to us. God has chosen how he will save us. And there will be many of us that say, no, you should have done it this way. No, it should have been this way. But friends, God is in control of this salvation plan. And we are called to submit to it. It's interesting because Jesus takes up this narrative of Jonah. And he says that Jonah actually points to himself. When Jonah got to Nineveh, he proclaimed God's judgment. And possibly we may see that that this sign that that he may have communicated, maybe that he was in the well. But you know what? The only one, the only one who experienced the miracle of the great fish was Jonah himself. He's the only one that got to see that sign. Nobody in Nineveh saw him swallowed. Nobody in Nineveh saw him purged out on the beach. But Jonah did. Jonah knew it was real because Jonah experienced it. So Jesus says that like Jonah was in the fish as good as dead, he was rescued through a miracle. The great fish saved him. And Jesus says that historical account occurred, but it ultimately is fulfilled in this. Jesus will be in the heart of the earth, pointing to his burial, his death, his crucifixion, his murder. There's an idiom in verse 40. It says, Three days and three nights, and this would have been an expression of time that it would go within and no more than three days and three nights. And what do we see? Jesus says this, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, there's the idiom, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jonah was in the belly of the great fish as good as dead, spewed out and told to preach to Nineveh. Jesus was really killed, put in a tomb. Three days and brought back to life. Not to preach to one city, but to the entire world in all ages since through the proclamation of his word. And we may say, but I didn't get to see the resurrection. I want a sign. I want God to come to me on my terms, not on his terms. Well, I think the Bible would say something to that. In John 20, verse 24, we read of someone who may have had that attitude. John 20, verse 24 says this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, And put my hand into his side. I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked. 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then Thomas, and he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus says you're more blessed to trust him now. So ask yourself this. Did Nineveh get to see Jonah spewed from the great fish? Did they get to see that miracle? No. Yet still they repented. Still they avoided the wrath of God. And I think what we see in Nineveh we must do as well, and we must make this application. We must emulate the repentance of the past. Look with me in verse 41. Jesus says this. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We must emulate. We must imitate. We must replicate the repentance of Nineveh. They were on the wrong path, running from God. And God's prophet shows up and they believe and they repent. So friend, what path are you on today? Are you lost? Are you running from God? But now you're faced through the scriptures with this Jesus who died and rose again, motivated partially by his love for you. Will you come to this Jesus or will you reject him? Something will happen on the judgment day according to this text. Before God, there will be those who died without receiving Jesus. And they will be judged for not turning to the Savior and contemporaries of Jonah, the Ninevites, will affirm their condemnation. It will happen to those of Jesus' time who rejected him and those who refused to reject him through all ages. The people who repented in Nineveh will say, we had Jonah. And Jonah hated us. He didn't love us. He just did what he was told. And we repented because we believed him. And God spared us. But you had someone greater than Jonah. You had Jesus. Jesus did not hate you. He loved you. Jesus did not preach reluctantly to you. He preached out of love and left us his scripture. He wanted us to repent. He wanted you to repent. He greatly wanted your good. And Jonah was just a disobedient prophet. Jesus is not only a prophet, he is the prophet. He is not merely a man, he is God. If, if we repented at the reluctant preaching of Jonah, how on earth could you not repent at the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ? That is what the people of Nineveh will say. And picture that as you. 
Picture you rejected Jesus, died, and breaking God's heart, you are cast aside from eternal fellowship with the Christ. And you hear the condemnation of the people of Nineveh who cannot believe that you would not turn to this God that loves you so much. But picture another scenario. Picture you embrace the love of this Jesus. Contemplate that you turn to the one who the grave could not conquer. And on that judgment day, you are not cast out, but you are saved forever. Heaven is your home and Jesus is your treasure. Not because of anything you've done, not because of anything you can earn, but because of the good pleasure of Jesus who paid the price for us all. And you are forever united with the one who spared Nineveh and the one who chose to give his life to save your soul. Because we will all face one of those two scenarios. Which path do you want to be on? Because friend, someone greater than Jonah is here. And his name is Jesus. Do you know him? Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity, not only to examine how you moved in the life of Jonah, but to see how Jonah and all of Scripture points to your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for not being a reluctant prophet. Thank you for being the prophet. Jesus, thank you that you not only came and offered us your salvation, but everything in your heart was longing for our good. And everything in your intention was longing for our salvation. And Jesus, we know ultimately your ultimate aim was to glorify the Father. And we are so grateful that intertwined in that plan to glorify the Father is the salvation of our souls. I pray that we will be able to testify that we have repented and turned to your salvation. That like the people of Nineveh, we will come to the realization that we are sinners. We have messed up. And you are our only hope. You who are sinless. And I pray that we're so grateful for your sacrifice and so thankful for what you've done that we commit our lives to your good news and embrace your salvation. Would you be with us now as we close by giving you what you alone deserve, worship. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us stand. We will close worshiping the Lord. If you need to make a decision today, if you need prayer today or anything, you come as we sing.